JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is almost back, and I could not be more excited. Hello, and welcome to episode 38 of Nerd Explosion. I am your host, John Windrib, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Sean Clark. How are you doing today, Sean? You know, I'm a little bit tired. Uh, moved into a new apartment. Uh, I've worked almost every day the last week. But you know what? It is nice to be building up your bank account. Definitely eases a lot of stress in your life. So doing good and excited to talk about what we got this week. Yeah, and of course, as I mentioned, we got, we got so much news about Stone Ocean from the last week. On the 6th, we got leaked images of the entirety of the main cast as well as um, screenshots or stills of the first episode, which will, of course, be premiering on netflix but on the 8th back in july at anime expo we were told that we were going to get a stone ocean event on the 8th of august and not only did we get a lot of news about what the release date for stone ocean would be but we got the full cast list for at least the main characters along with a trailer Yes, this trailer was very cool. You see, uh, uh, you see Jotaro's daughter Jolene in prison for a crime that she did not commit, and you see stands in prison. You see her interacting in prison. You see her make allies in prison, which is Stone Ocean because you know it's a building with a bunch of stones. So of course it's a stone ocean. So it's very literal. And we see Jotaro in the trailer, which was awesome because we, we haven't seen him since the first episode of golden wind. So it is very exciting to see him again. That, that definitely put a smile on my face. And it's, it's like, it, it's like golden wind, but like, but going back to more Starters Crusaders type stuff, but but instead of but but not the traveling aspect. So it's definitely something new and exciting that I'm looking forward to. But I'll be honest, uh, I'm very intrigued to see what they do. Like, what are the what are the allies going to be like? What are the villains going to be like? Obviously, the thing I'm the two things I'm most excited about is one, uh, we saw Jotaro in the trailer, and that was really cool. We didn't get to see the main villain in the trailer, which that makes me excited because the last two parts of JoJo's didn't reveal the villain until halfway through, and that worked really well. Well, DIU did it better than Golden Wind, but it still worked. But I'm excited. I'm I'm intrigued to see him for the first time. Yeah, um, talking about Jotaro's appearance. Um, he, of course, is a lot slimmer in this part. He looks a lot, he looks kind of similar to the design that we had just for a short bit in Golden Wind, where he has a, a more swim character design lining up with how Araki drew characters at this point in um, JoJo's. Um, along with, this is probably the craziest, most out there design that he's had since his introduction to Stardust Crusaders. Um, from having pants that connect down to his boots um, with seemingly snake-type printing all over them, along with the giant stars covering um, his upper torso and all of that, and then the, the deep greens and purples and, and oranges and browns all over his attire. It's probably the most colorful design he's had. 
Yeah, because in Stardust Crusaders, he wore, you know, basically the, the, the same, you know, a jacket that was basically one color, uh, which was green. And then in DIU, he basically wore a white outfit with colors here or there. So it's definitely much more colorful. The color palette in this trailer was very interesting because you did see a lot of color on characters, but the scenery wasn't very colorful either. So that's a very interesting blend that we have not yet seen in JoJo's. Yeah, and that's mainly because it's a prison. So like the walls are supposed to be kind of kind of gray. And again, like all of the colors and stuff are um, choices that Araki made when talking with their productions for the anime because Araki doesn't have a specific color palette for any character, which is why Jolene um, looks different in the anime than she does in the colorized versions of the manga, because those were not made in cooperation with Araki. So if any of the designs happen to have some more color palettes, it's just that Araki liked what the manga did and wanted to reuse it for the anime. Um, almost all of the other characters have basically the same color palette they did in the colorized manga, which I Especially considering that Joeen's colors were were different. I was really surprised by that. It's not... I, I think there's a part of me that's, that's glad there aren't any like hugely drastic changes like there were with Golden Wind's color palette. Because if you looked at Fugo's design in the manga for Golden Wind and then look at his design in the anime, it's almost completely different um, color palette-wise. And so is Jorno's. Like, I don't think Jorno's um, costume was purple or pinkish in the colorized manga like it is in the anime. Um, but I think, it, like, as you were saying, like, all the color palettes are done in a way to make all the characters distinct. One of the things I was really worried about with the, the color palettes for the characters in Stone Ocean was Anasui, or Anastasia, as he's called in the trailer because localization. Um, looks very similar to Diavolo because of his long pink hair. And I initially thought they were going to change it to a different color for the anime so it wouldn't look too much like Diavolo from Golden Wind. And I was really surprised they didn't do that. The, thinking about it, yeah. I, it, it definitely did look a lot like Diavolo, obviously not Diavolo. Uh, all, that would be an insane plot twist if it was him. No, it's not. He's dead. Well, he's not dead, but he's dying infinitely many times yeah, without was, actually being dead. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, that would have been quite an all-time plot twist right there. But <laughs> but, but no, I, I agree. It's Seeing these drastic hair colors is very representative of what JoJo's is. And it's... It's something I'm glad to see in this trail. Like, like I talked about earlier, like very distinct designs. You know, that's that's what the last couple parts of JoJo's have really emphasized. Well, mainly Golden Wind, but yes. Yeah, I'd say D.I.U. had them too, but it's because Diamond is Unbreakable, because of all the characters being, like, students in D.I.U., um, most of them had very, like, similar-ish outfits, but it's the same thing with, like, Stardust Crusaders. Like, I think Polnareff's design in Stardust Crusaders was probably the most unique of the main cast. Um, and then when it came to D.I.U., like, all the characters at least had symbols, on their outfits to make them distinct. Um, like Josuke, Okuyasu, and Koichi, while they all had school uniforms, they all looked vastly different design-wise. And then you look at a character, characters like Jotaro and Rohan, whose outfits changed almost every time they appeared on screen. 
Yeah, yeah, that is true. Uh, there have been some very interesting looking characters. Yeah, Polnareff was very odd when we first saw him. Kakuin looked a bit interesting uh, with his pink hair color as well. But then you also had Rohan look who, I mean, is the self-insert character of JoJo's. And yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, um, and so, yeah, in Golden Wind, they had like unique designs for every single character yeah, as well. Yeah. Uh, not just for the main cast, but for all the villains. Um, and, like, you look at characters like Polpo or Pesci or Carne, um, who was Notorious Big's user, and you can tell that the Rocky had more fun with the character designs in Golden Wind compared to Diamonds Unbreakable, and I wonder if that's going to be the case with Stone Ocean. Um, most of the character designs that we've seen so far with the Stone Ocean trailer look pretty par for the course when it came to how Araki drew the main characters in Golden Wind. The, the designs are very similar. Um, like Joanne and, um, and Foo Fighters um, have very like similar bodily structure and physical structure to what Trish's design was in Golden Wind. This is true. Um, I think Her- out of the female main cast, I think Hermes, who appears to be the main I, th- I hope I've pronounced her name right, but she appears to be the main um, Joe bro, or I guess Joe gal, because female main character, um, for Stone Ocean. Um, so I'm curious what her stand is going to be. The only one that I really know about, like, stand-wise, I know Weather Report, because I, his stand does something with weather, but I don't know what it does <laughs> exactly. Um and I know Stone Free because of my Iraqi article, because I wrote about her stand in that article. And Joe Taro has Star Platinum, of course. But I don't know any of the rest of the main cast's stands. Which is going to make it more fun when they're actually real, because we don't know what to expect. Yeah. Like, I know, like, some of the names. Like, I know Anna Sui's is Diver Down, but I have no idea what that does. I, like, the name means nothing to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I so. I don't, yeah, I don't have a clue. And it, it's kind of similar to how the stand names were before I started reading Steel Ball Run. Because for those that don't know, I, over the summer, I took time to read Steel Ball Run for the first time. So the stand name, I knew most of the stand names in Steel Ball Run, too. I just didn't know what any of them did. <laughs> so it's kind of the same situation with me with Stone Ocean. I know the names of a lot of the stands. Like, I know the name of the villain stand for Part 6 already, but I have no idea what it does. Which is a good thing. It, yeah. it creates the anticipation. Yeah. And that's because I have it on the shirt. Because <laughs> I have a JoJo villain shirt that has the main villain in the stand from Stone Ocean. So. Oh, yes, you do. So I know you had a lot of thoughts about this on Twitter. So now I'll let you say that on here. But tell, tell us about uh, your thoughts on the fact that it's going to be released on Netflix uh, in 13 episode uh, nuggets. Like, well, potentially 13-episode chunks. That's, that's what I'm, like, thinking that it could be um, because I haven't seen enough news sources produce, like, con- concrete release dates for Stone Ocean in Japan. So all we have is the international release date for Netflix, which is the end of December. Um, based off of when the show went into production, again, like, the show was going on Netflix. So based off of when it was going into production before Netflix like we got the license for it. I think that Stone Ocean was already being made. So 
I assume that its original release date was going to be October, like Golden Wind was back in 2018 um, for fall season. Um, again, like dealing with the core system where it's like 13 episodes per core, that would give us 39 episodes just like, I mean, this is Unbreakable and Golden Wind. Um, it could be more than that. I know that Stone Ocean is longer than Golden Wind is, so I wouldn't be surprised if there's more than 39 episodes and they go um, longer like Stardust Crusaders, but actually deserving of it this time around. Um, but the big thing is that the show's going up on Netflix, which has never happened before with the mainline JoJo parts. I mean, we did see that with the Rohan Kashibi BAs, but those had already aired in Japan, and they just were kind of lost in licensing hell before Netflix picked them up. Um, but before Stone Ocean, the streaming for the individual parts of JoJo were handled by Crunchyroll with the dubs or the U.S. streaming um, or television airing on Toonami on Cartoon Network. So when it came to U.S. release, when it came to streaming, it was always Crunchyroll. When it came to television, it was always Toonami. Netflix acquiring the rights to Stone Ocean basically shakes both of those. And this can be very polarizing for some JoJo fans because a lot of people that are fans of JoJo either watched it on Crunchyroll or watched it on cable with Cartoon Network on Toonami um, through Adult Swim. So a lot of fans have to change the way that they got the show or might not be able to watch it on Netflix um, when it premieres. So it's very likely that we might see an increase in pirating of the show, especially if it ends up releasing <clears throat> and airing weekly in Japan starting in October. So, so basically... So basically what you're saying is that it's going to be released probably in Japan sometime in October like Golden Wind did. It's very likely it will release before it goes up on Netflix. When Netflix got Great Pretender, that's exactly what happened with it, and that's usually what happens with their shows. Typically, they'll air in Japan, and then Netflix puts it on their service as soon as they're able to localize the show for their audience. Um, so in multiple languages, I mean... The positive of this is we could see an English dub much sooner than we would normally with um, basically every part of JoJo's up until Golden Wind. We had the right at least a year, if not more than that, to get a dub for the part on Toonami. Um, with the original JoJo's, I think it was two and a half years between when it aired in Japan to going on Toonami. I think Stardust Crusaders was, was three because I think Stardust Crusaders aired, no, it was two, because it aired in 2015 in Japan, um, I think, and then it went up on Toonami in 2017, and then Diamond is Unbreakable was two years from 2016 to 2018. Um, and Golden Wind was, I think Golden Wind actually had the shortest break in release, because it was just a little over a year, because it finished airing in 2019, and then it started airing on Toonami in 2020. Or 20, or... Yeah. Okay, so there are there are definitely benefits like like you say getting English dub earlier, but there's also yeah. but there's also the risk of pirating. So do you think that um do you think that this is overall a good thing that it's going on Netflix or do you wish uh do you wish to the contrary? I'm I'm kind of in the middle of the road cuz like the pros are that 
we would get localization much sooner than we would normally. Because again, normally we'd have to wait for the part to be completely finished in Japan. Um, and then for Toonami to get the rights for the part for Warner to handle all of that, because Warner Brothers is um, the head of distributing JoJo's. Um, they own the worldwide distribution. I think they own the company that, I'm pretty sure that they own David Productions, but I could be wrong in that. Um, but they're in charge of the distribution and licensing for JoJo's. Um, so, and since they own Cartoon Network, that's why it was gone through there. But with, with it being on Netflix, again, we could see a dub, not just in English, but in basically every language that, um, that they have the rights to, which is new because that's never really been done before. I know, because again, my current role didn't handle the dubbing. So usually international dubs were done by separate companies based, that were based in the country they were being dubbed in. But that's like the biggest positive. The other big positive is that um, people will be able to likely binge JoJo's um, in grouped sections, like 13 episodes or so. Again, this isn't confirmed. This is just speculation based off of when um, JoJo's Stone Ocean went into production. Um, I could be completely wrong. We don't have any actual evidence that this is the case. The only date I've seen for release in Japan is in January, but that was only reported by a single source. So I haven't seen that date anywhere else. So that's why I'm taking it with a grain of salt. Um, I know that there was a page on Twitter that said that the show would go up all at once, like all 39 or so episodes would go up on Netflix at once, but they have since deleted their tweet. So that's likely false and not true. Um, I've seen an image of the tweet shared across Twitter. I just want people to know that that probably isn't the case. And until we hear hard evidence that states otherwise, I'm kind of optimistic about what's going on with the Japanese release. Um, but the cons, as I mentioned, are that if it does release in Japan weekly in October before it goes up on Netflix, we'll likely see an increase in pirating for it, like we saw with shows like Devilman Crybaby or um, Violet Evergarden or Beastars or any other huge anime that gets licensed to Netflix after it initially aired in Japan. But I'm hoping that this ends up more like a situation with Great Pretender, where either it goes on Netflix immediately after the episodes air in Japan, or better yet, it's a weekly Japanese, um, or it's a weekly broadcast like what we see with Crunchyroll or Funimation on Netflix's service. The reason I don't think that will be the case is because that's never happened before. Uh, again, they usually do like chunk releases they usually local they they usually wait till the show's done in japan then they localize it for their audience and then that goes up on netflix um so if they decide to do a weekly release with stone ocean it would be the first time they've ever done that for any anime that's exclusive to their platform the other big con is that if it doesn't have a weekly release on netflix which again we don't know if it will or not but I'm currently rolling with the idea that it's probably going to be 13 episode chunks because that's more likely based off of Netflix's um, history with anime. Um, if they do do 13 episode chunks, that could hurt the online discourse for Stone Ocean because when I wasn't watching the first four parts of JoJo when they were airing, but I did watch Golden Wind while it was airing both in Japan and here in the U.S., 
and I saw it trend nearly every single week on Twitter um, where I live here in Arizona. So it would be insane for them not to do weekly because it could hurt the discourse. Because again, it trended both when it was airing in Japan and streaming on Crunchyroll and again when it aired on Toonami. So it had like twice the word, like double the word of mouth um, than it would just on Netflix. And even more so if it doesn't have a weekly release. So I'm kind of erring more on the, there could potentially be more negatives than positives, but that's entirely dependent on Netflix's model for Stone Ocean's release. I got to say that I was quite surprised when I saw this. It's not something I was expecting. I don't think you were expecting it either. No, I, I mean, after the Rohan OVs going up on Netflix, I definitely thought that it might happen, but I didn't think it would. Um, but it's also important to note that Netflix is the only major streaming service when it comes to anime in Japan. So they have a lot of leeway there, which might be that along with Netflix's success in distributing anime and the fact that Funimation um, and Crunchyroll are now both owned by Sony, which we'll talk about later. It, that likely had a huge um, weight in why their productions and Warner decided to give the show over to Netflix instead of Sony. That makes sense. Yeah, a lot of people before it was confirmed to go on Netflix were speculating that Funimation would get the rights to JoJo because of the because of Crunchyroll being bought by Sony and then eventually becoming the same service. Um, a lot of dub fans were hoping that would be the case because that would mean that it would likely get simul dubbed for better or for worse, depending on how you feel about simul dubs. Um, but I think that as a dub fan, this is kind of like the best of both worlds. But as a fan of like the popularity of JoJo's and it gaining a larger audience, this could potentially hurt it. But yeah, I was very surprised it went to Netflix. Again, like for Netflix usually doesn't pick up long-running anime that have existed for a long time as like exclusive shows. I think the last time this happened was with Psyche K, but that only had um, two seasons before it went to Netflix. So it's not like JoJo's, which has been airing since 2012 in Japan. Like it's crazy that they were able to pick up the license but it's again like we do to circumstance of everything happening to anime distribution because of stuff we're going to talk about later i get you overall you're excited though that we're getting it in within the next few months yeah i I like overall yes i'm very excited for stone ocean i've been waiting for this show to get confirmed since golden wind ended back in 2019 and it only took us over um nearly two and a half years to finally get it but i'm why i'm gonna be excited no matter what to watch it it's just like i don't know how i feel about the way they're going um through with the distribution but it makes sense from like a business standpoint i totally get why netflix got the rights i'm just kind of mixed on how i feel about it but overall like i'm going to like the show no matter what um I'm like i love jojo's naturally i'm really excited for stone ocean i just there's a part of me that kind of wishes that it, as much of a hindrance as it was for people that wanted to watch dubs um, and, and such, I think that the situation with it going to Crunchyroll weekly and then airing on Toonami after um, the whole thing was out, I think was a really safe way to distribute the anime and get it to American audiences 
and I'm worried about how this will play out just because this has never been done before um, by Netflix or otherwise, especially if Netflix chooses to do a weekly release. So I'm like cautiously optimistic. Well, let's, uh, let's hope for the best, but I'm, def- I'm definitely excited to check it out when it comes out. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, like going back to the trailer, it looks great. And their production's um, work on Golden Wind was exceptional. And I think one of the, before Golden Wind came out, um, all American audiences had with Golden Wind was the badly translated manga scans. There have been like updated ones, but most JoJo fans, all they knew about Golden Wind was the really bad scans from the early 2000s that came um, with the rise of the internet. And because of that, a lot of fans were very polarized against Golden Wind. So when the part got animated, a lot of the fans, um, and you can see this in, in videos like Cosmonaut um, Picture Show's video on JoJo's where he is very vehemently against Golden Wind and really didn't like it. But that's again, because he only read the badly translated and scanned manga. There's all kinds of issues with Golden Wind's manga that we covered while we were covering um, the show here on the podcast, but based off of David Productions' work with Golden Wind, I imagine that will be a similar case with Stone Ocean, because I know that a lot of American fans that have read the manga feel very similar about Stone Ocean that they do about Golden Wind for a lot of the same reasons. The art doesn't look nearly as good in the scans. The tra- It was not translated the best. Um, and I think that those issues cause people to kind of be a little bit polarized against Golden Wind and Stone Ocean. Luckily, the popularity of the anime and especially what David Productions did with Golden Wind seems to have changed the discourse when it comes to Stone Ocean. There are a lot of people really excited for this, especially because um, Jolene is Jotaro's daughter and all the interesting dynamics that come with that. Well, yeah, Jotaro is the most popular JoJo. Yes. Uh, maybe not here in the West, but he certainly is in Japan. Um, I think that here in the West, it actually might be, it's pretty close between almost all of the main characters here in the West. I know that Jotaro is a fan favorite just because of design and all of that. But I think that because of the anime, um, I think that the, the way that people feel about protagonists is more like varied depending on what their taste in anime is. Like, for both of us, I think that within, like, the part itself, I think both of us would say that Josuke is probably the best JoJo out of the main, out of the five that we've gotten so far. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. I would say he's easily my favorite. But I also know people that don't think Josuke is good, so. Yeah, yeah, and I think that most of the people that, that don't like Josuke are people that prefer um, characters like Jotaro. Um, it seems like... There is a JoJo for nearly every type of person that watches JoJo's. Like, there's some people that really love Jonathan because they like classic superhero archetypes, and Jonathan fits perfectly into that. People like Joseph because he's hilarious and the comedy with him, and also how intelligent he is as a protagonist compared um, to Jonathan. Um, people like Jotaro because of him being your typical shonen protagonist that acts with his fists. And while he does definitely think in fights and does have a lot of tactical stuff and strategy that goes into them, um, Joe Taro's fights in Stardust Crusaders were way more um, action-based and way more him talking with his fists rather than thinking. 
um, and that didn't really come into play until near the end of Stardust Crusaders. And then Josuke is like your typical, he feels like a Marty McFly type character, right? He, yeah, he, I, would, I would agree with that. Like yeah. he's, he is very much uh, wanting to take action, um, but he also has things that set him off, but he also is a relatable character with relatable flaws and, and goals as a character. And then Giorno is probably the most interesting and most out there of JoJo's protagonists. Again, because he's kind of a mix of morally good and bad, um, because that's kind of what you need in a, in a story like Golden Wind. But because of that, along with the focus on group character dynamics, he kind of got put in the back burner sometimes. So, and those things combined kind of make Giorno probably the most... I think like one side or the other, like a lot of people either think that Giorno is really bland or they think he's the best protagonist in JoJo's. And there's like only a handful of people like me and Sean that kind of end up in the middle of that. Yeah, I just I just find him to be a very meh protagonist, as I've said. Yeah, for me, it depends on the episode. <laughs> there are a lot of episodes in Golden Wind where Giorno is amazing. And then there's a lot of episodes where he's kind of just okay. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would so, agree with that. I'm hoping that that isn't... I imagine that that won't be the case with Jolene, just because even just based off the trailer, I already have a pretty good idea on what her personality is like. More so than I did with Jorno when Golden Wind's trailer first came out. Yeah, I think, I think I'm definitely going to like Jolene when it's all said and done. I think she's going to be one of the stronger protagonists, I think. And I'm excited to see her interact with Jotaro. Yeah. I mean, the real question is whether or not she'll be as good as Josuke and Joseph are, or if she'll be more like Jotaro and Jorno. I think that it'll be, I think that she'll end up being closer to how likable or at least interesting, compelling um, Josuke and Joseph are. Or I've read Steel Ball Run, so I can speak about the protagonist of Steel Ball Run. Johnny and Steel Ball Run is probably the best protagonist we've gotten in, in JoJo's like overall. Um, and considering that Jolene is the protagonist before him, I imagine that she'll be really good. Because it would be weird for Araki to go from Jorno to Johnny without having like an intermediate step between them. That is a very good point. Because Johnny, Johnny in Steel Ball Run is a lot is very similar to how Jorno is in Golden Wind, where he has a lot of uh, conflicting character traits that are um, written and designed really well in, in Steel Ball Run. Because he's, well, again, like he's, a, he's a redone version of Jonathan, so like he has all the altruism there, but it's more that he doesn't want to kill someone unless they are directly in conflict with him. He's not like Jorno, where it's like, you did something bad, I'm going to murder you for it. Which I imagine will be the same case with Jolene, based off of what we've seen with her in the trailer. I'd be surprised if she didn't want to murder the person that framed her and put her in jail. Yeah, she'll probably want to murder him. Yeah. Um, and I imagine that she's going to be a little more unhinged than Joe Tara was in Stardust Crusaders. And I think that it'll likely be a lot of the character traits that Joe Taro had just kind of done better with Jolene. I think I talked about this back in April when we first got confirmation with Stone Ocean, but that seems to be what Araki has done with every protagonist starting with Diamond is Unbreakable going forward, because Josuke 
felt like um, a combination of Joseph, of Jonathan and Joseph's personalities. Jorno is a combination of Jonathan and Dio and their character traits kind of redone and refocused within his character. And Joeen feels like a retread of Jotaro. And that becomes even more literal with Steel Ball Run and Jojolian with those characters literal be, literally being redos of Jonathan and Josuke. Yeah, I, I, I definitely excited to see uh, what kind of impact she will leave at when Steel Ball Run is over. And when Stone Ocean is can, over. Sorry, Stone Ocean. Sorry, you keep talking about Steel Ball Run. Yeah. Um, but when Stone Ocean ends, I'm interested to see like what kind of impact she leaves among the other five protagonists and where she stacks up. I think... I think she'll end up being more interesting than Jotaro, but that that will just depend on on what kind of character that she is and what what she'll be like when she confronts the adversity, like the person who framed her or even the main villain, or if that's the same person. I don't think it is, because I think that we see a picture of the person that framed her in the trailer, and that is not the main villain for Stone Ocean. So okay. I have a... This will probably be similar to Diamond is Unbreakable, where we get a bunch of smaller scale-like villains before we get to the main villain and their wackies. Because like Golden Wind took a more like Stardust Crusaders approach to the way that it did its um, villains and its story, so it would make sense for Stone Ocean to do a more Diamond is Unbreakable approach with it. Especially since, like Diamond is Unbreakable, Stone Ocean has a small concentrated location for most of its part being the Green Dolphin prison just why Diamonds Unbreakable had Morio. So most of the stand users we're going to see, at least for the first half of Stone Ocean, are going to be in the prison. I don't know if we're going to get a location change or not. I think it's likely, um, but I don't know. And something that we haven't mentioned yet is this is also um, the first part since Battle Tennessee to largely take place in the United States. Because it takes place in Florida. Oh, yeah, it is. that's right. It does take place in Florida. That's so weird. <laughs> yeah. But I love it. Yeah. And, and I mean, if, so I'm interested to see what they're going to do with that. Again, like most of the part takes place in prison. So it's like we were not going to see a whole lot of Florida landmarks, especially since Iraqi didn't really start touring the United States or like going across it for um, location ideas until, until um, he wrote Steel Ball Run. So I don't know. I don't think that we're going to see like, as many locations like local to Florida and Stone Ocean like we saw with Italy and Golden Wind. That makes sense. But no, any any final thoughts on the trailer, Sean, before or any of the any of the rest of that? I know oh we also didn't talk about um we didn't talk about Yugo Kano's score yet. Because we got Joeen Steam in the trailer. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, obviously Yugo Kano is very fantastic and I really, I really liked how how epic, how epic and badass it was, uh, and it definitely kind of reminded reminded me of Jotaro's theme a bit, which was pretty nice. Yeah, a lot of people have been comparing it to the Wonder Woman theme, um, with the way that it's um, composed, um, with how fast it is, and a lot of the beats are um, in the same place that um, Hans Zimmer's Wonder Woman theme has, um, and it seems like that was purposeful um when yugo kano talked about um scoring stone ocean back in um in april when we first got confirmation that the part was happening and that yugo was returning to do the score um 
he talked about the fact that he was going to use more modern or American comic style influences in the score for Stone Ocean because of when it takes place, um, because it takes place in 2011 in the United States. So it makes sense to have those kind of influences in Stone Ocean's score. Thought it was 2001. No, it takes place in 2011. It's 10 years after Golden Wind, which is why Jolene is 18. Okay, that makes sense. Gotcha. Because remember, Joe Taro is in his mid the late 20s in Diamond is Unbreakable and Golden Wind. Okay, now I get the timeline. Thank you. Yeah, it would be weird for him to be 28 in Stone Ocean, considering he was 17 in Stardust Crusaders and didn't have a romantic interest in it, unlike Jonathan and Joseph. That, that is true. That is true. But yeah, and um, also... I think we probably mentioned this back in April, but Jolene is also the oldest protagonist that we've gotten in JoJo since Jonathan. Because she's a year older than Jotaro was in uh, Stardust Crusaders, and I think that she's the same age as Joseph. So I guess she's the oldest protagonist we've gotten since Joseph in Battle Tennessee. Um, and Josuke and Jorno were both 15 in Diamond Sunbreakable and Golden Wind. Yeah, I do, I do like that aspect. I do remember that now, yeah. I do... I do like that because there'll be some maturity, maturity, but I think, I think it'll work really well for the story. Yeah. I mean, again, it, it's one of those things that kind of had to be the case because she's in prison in the United States. That's how our prison system works. Um, it's different. We have like juvenile prison systems compared to adult prison systems. Um, and in most states, I think that the age for which one you go to um, is different, whether you go to juvie or um, the adult person complex, but for Florida, I'm pretty sure that you have to be a, like an adult to go to um, the adult person complex, or at least you did at the time that Stone Ocean was written in the 90s, because Stone Ocean was written in the late 90s, early 2000s. Well, yeah, and, you know, Florida just has a lot of weird rules, so that's understandable. Yeah. But any final thoughts on uh, the Stone Ocean before we move on to our next piece of news, Sean? I do not. I'm just yeah. re- I'm looking forward to its release. Yeah. Um, we mentioned it a bit in our discussion about Stone Ocean, but um, four days ago, uh, from the day that we're recording this, on August 9th, um, Crunchyroll was officially bought by um, Sony Entertainment and conjoined with Funimation. The deal has officially gone through and it is officially owned by Sony now. Um, so I'm sure that a lot of people are very confused about what this could mean for streaming. I know that we talked a bit about this when um, Country World was initially purchased by Sony and Funimation. So now that that deal is official, what are we going to see from um, the streaming services of Country World and Funimation and, and Verve? Because uh, there's no reason for them to have more than one anime streaming service, right, Sean? Well, kind of like with uh, with the Cannon Clark and the Rich Report, just merge them. Yeah, there's on, I know Funimation's article, they specifically stated that inevitably we're going to see one giant service that is meant to be a combination of Crunchyroll and Funimation. And a lot of people are hoping that they take um, Crunchyroll style of formatting over Funimation's because Crunchyroll's service, at least online and on mobile, is better than Funimation's. Um, and the way that it's structured and um, the way that it's programmed. 
the real question is what is this going to mean for Verve? Because Verve is owned by Warner Brothers, but was made through um, Crunchyroll. Um, and Crunchyroll is now owned by Sony, which competes with all of the other parts of the service that are either owned by Warner Brothers or are their own thing. Like High Dive is self-owned by Sentai Filmworks, which is a subsidiary of um, Sentai Entertainment. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with Verve. It's probably just going to either disappear or Crunchyroll is going to leave it. Um, and we don't know. And it's possible the whole service could collapse and be replaced by something else by Warner. Or just be um, usurped into HBO Max. Who knows? I think that having United Streaming Services would be the best thing because I've always wondered, like, okay, we have Funimation, we have Crunchyroll. Like, why, like, why, why does it need need to be separate? I think that having having United Streaming Service would put so much anime together. It would make it more accessible, make it less confusing. Yeah. And that would allow people that maybe haven't watched anime before to get into it. So personally. Uh, this is a very good. This is this is very good news because it allows it to be more pulled together. So many streaming services nowadays that combining them will make it so much easier for people and also more cost effective as well. While 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 Sony can still profit off of it. Yeah, I I agree with your point on this, but I'm more middle of the road. There are a lot of there are the pros like we've mentioned. But there's a lot of cons that come with this, too. Um, I think, again, like as we mentioned in Stone Ocean, I think one of the biggest reasons why Stone Ocean is going to Netflix rather than Crunchyroll or Funimation or Sony is because Warner doesn't want to give one of their shows over to Sony, which is why it's going to Netflix for the first time. So because Sony owns both Crunchyroll and Funimation, there's going to be a lot of more shows going to Netflix or also High Dive than we've likely seen before because now we're because there's only four services that really have anime or or and soon to be three because Funimation and Crunchyroll are going to inevitably combine into one service. Licensing and all the production companies behind the anime in Japan are going to be more inclined to sell their licenses to people that aren't Sony because if they weren't a lot of the licenses that were already on Crunchyroll might go to some more someplace else because if they wanted them to go to Funimation, they would have gone to Funimation already. So it's like we were going to see a lot more anime go towards Netflix or um, High Dive than we've seen before. Um, we're already starting to see that with um, shows like Ben One Saga, who were previously exclusive to Amazon, that are now going to Sentai because Amazon is s- stepping out of the anime streaming service gang. Um, Hulu doesn't have any form of um, exclusive streaming for anime. They only up or pick up shows that have already hit a different service. So it's really just Sony, Netflix, and Sentai Filmworks slash High Dive now. So, it, which is why a lot of people are seeing it as a monopoly. It's not a monopoly, but it does cause a lot of issues for the licensing industry going forward. It does. But I ultimately, I mean, personally, I mean, I could be a little biased here, but Funimation is the best streaming service, in my opinion. It's very well laid out. That It has the best content. So putting more Crunchyworks on there would be best. And I think that even though, like, I get the whole, uh, oh, if they would have sold the Funimation, they would have done already. But that would still be the best thing 
you know, unless you unless you put it to Netflix. But almost everyone has Netflix. Almost, and if you want to get into anime, just combining animation and Crunchyroll would make that easy. Okay, I get I get the whole high dive thing. That's a just that's a just merge with Crunchyroll and Funimation. As that's well. never going to happen. <laughs> well, that's unfortunate. Because well, you, the reason why high dive can't merge with Funimation or Crunchyroll is purely because it would cause a it would cause licensing companies to have to split between either Netflix or Sony and the United States government hopefully wouldn't let that happen. Why? Because if, if Netflix eventually, because it would be one or the other, any licensing for the U S would have to pick between two companies, which would mean that they only have one-to-one rivalry and inevitably that would cause there only to be one competitor. Inevitably they would both see the fact that they're the only ones left and possibly merge between them. And that would cause a monopoly for anime licensing. At the same time, though, don't we see a lot of one-on-one uh, robberies already uh, in this country anyways? In what exactly? Give examples, Sean. Okay, well, obviously, you have, you have, App- you have Apple and Microsoft products. Yeah, but you also have Samsung and Android, which is owned by Warner, and Google. Apple and Microsoft aren't the only people competing when it comes to But they're by far the top two. Not really. They're, They're big, yeah, but they have a lot more competitors than just the two of them. They're not the only competition each other have. That's the difference. So what you're saying that having high dive around would... It, so high dive is basically like Samsung in this instance. Kind, it potentially could be. It really depends on how many licensors don't want to sell their um, shows to Netflix or Sony. Without competition, there's no incentive for them to ever improve their stuff. And while I get that you like Funimation, it has all kinds of issues, whether it be how often it goes down as a service. It's had all kinds of issues handling its own bandwidth. The announcement for um, Funimation um, buying out Crunchyroll alone caused their blog website to go down because of how many hits it was getting. I and Crunchyroll you. and Netflix don't have this issue at all, and Verve especially doesn't. Funimation service... And, I, I know it's much better on video game consoles like PlayStation, and, and I know that it's better on Voodoo, but when it comes, or on the Fire Stick, but when it comes to online, their online web servers are horrendous, and they need a lot of working to get better. And I think one, another thing that people are really afraid of is that this merger will mean that Crunchyroll will get put on, like all Crunchyroll stuff will be put on Funimation rather than the two combining and finding the best of both worlds because of all the issues with Funimation's platform. I mean, they have a lot of really good shows, and their dubbing is really good, but them as a service could have a lot to improve. And without competition, especially without smaller competition with better services, High Dive is one of the best anime streaming services despite the lack of content, lack of really good content it has. So they need a competitor like High Dive to keep them in check and to get them to improve their service, to have 
worthy competition other than just Netflix. I understand. So as cool as it would be to have anime all in one place, and I get why so many people, um, so many anime fans think, think it sucks that they have to own so many services in order they get all the animated content they want. If everything was in one place, the service could be the worst service you've ever seen for $15 per month. And it would be the only option you would have. They would have no incentive to improve and they could charge whatever the hell they want. That is a good point. So that's why I like, there are a lot of things I like about Funimation Country Rule combining. Um, I mean, Funimation being able to work with multiple studios and having a larger range of actors to work with, kind of like what we saw with the pandemic is really cool. Um, and the amount of anime that would be on the platform is really neat. But ultimately, I think there's just as many, if not more, cons to pros to, um, to Sony buying Crunchyroll. And I think the only reason why this buyout even happened is because of their um, business venture failures in other countries. There's a reason why Crunchyroll isn't in Japan. It's because they failed spectacularly and lost a lot of money from that venture. Um, and I think it's the only reason why they were in process of being bought. In a world where Crunchyroll didn't make any stupid business decisions, I don't think they should have ever been bought by Sony. They're way too big or successful or potentially successful to be able to be bought by another company. Like, there's a reason why Sentai isn't owned by anyone. So it's just, this is like one of the, it's, it's very similar in situation to when Disney bought Fox, where if the company had made better decisions, there wasn't a world where this buyout should have happened. But now we have to live with all the ramifications of it, and not all of them are good. Business world can be very harsh. Yeah. Speaking of entertainment business, um, this week we also finally got confirmation of what Warner Brothers is going to be doing with their films going into 2020. I know in 2021, for all of their films, they're simultaneously releasing in theaters and on HBO Max. We saw this last week with The Suicide Squad, and we're going to see this to continue with films like Dune going into December. But for 2022, Warner Brothers is opting instead for an exclusive partnership with AMC theaters that where Warner Brothers will exclusively release most of their films in AMC for 45 days before they hit VOD or streaming on HBO Max or other services. Considering that's, that the Suicide Squad is not uh, shattering box office by any means of the imagination, this was a move that was much needed. Because, yeah, when, when you put films on streaming that people can just pay with their monthly membership, they're gonna, they're, a lot of people are going to want to stay at home, not just during the pandemic. But got to be honest here, some people can be really lazy. Yeah. That, 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 that's just the way it is. But pre- preventing for the first 45 days, those films from going straight to HBO max where people can just pay with their own uh, monthly stream service that that will for- force people to go to the theaters. If they want to get the film, people are not going to, w- are not going to wait for 45 days. If they really want to see the suicide squad, they want to see it within a week or so if they're able. Absolutely. And so putting this in the theaters is going to drive up revenue again, which is good because like I said, the suicide squad is not, ex- not exactly shattering the box office by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. I was I was looking at uh, theater uh, tickets to see see Suicide Squad soon. 
it was all the way at the bottom when it comes to recommendations. It was all the, like you had to scroll past films that only had one showing that day. It, it's, it's not very advertising theaters either, which it doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Yeah. But that's just the way it is. So putting it in theaters will definitely give it more of that theater advertisement, which is a good thing. Yeah. And the contrast with that, we don't know how well it's doing on HBO Max, but considering um, the praise that Warner and the amount of marketing that Warner is giving it, it's likely that it is doing really well in HBO Max and just isn't doing as well in theaters. So it's likely the film is still making a profit. We just don't know how much of a profit it's making because they won't, um, Warner won't give out the numbers that it's doing on HBO Max. But this is a huge change. Again, with WB, with Warner's films presumably going exclusive to AMC, that means that a lot of other theater chains won't get these films. But it also will be a reinvigoration for AMC, which a lot of theater chains have not been doing so well, as you mentioned, um, because of the low box office numbers due to the pandemic. Um, AMC especially almost went bankrupt um, last year uh, at the height of the pandemic um, in May of 2020. So they need a deal like this in order to keep themselves alive. And Warner would profit from this deal because their profit margins would probably go back to being the same. They can both use HBO Max as a platform to getting uh, money out of their films while also making a lot off of box office going into 2022. So this is kind of like a best of both worlds situation, or at least hopefully it will be. We'll have to wait and see um, starting in January, whether or not this is more profitable for them than um, what they were working with in 2021, having the simultaneous release. Definitely. But this will affect a lot of films, including Matt Reeves' The Batman. Um, so we'll just have to wait and see what this does for the industry. I know that this could cause a lot of people to wait um, that the 45 days to watch it on streaming because again it's only going to be playing in amc so if they don't have an amc theater near them their best option would be streaming that is the one issue with this deal but it makes sense yeah but we'll just have to wait and see what this does for the industry you have any any uh, overall thoughts on this sean well it's unfortunate well flagstaff has harkins and harkins is obviously not amc so that's gonna suck a little bit but you know I'll also be out of Flagstaff by then, so that's okay. But it, it'll be it'll definitely be interesting to see uh, how box office uh, revenue increases with this. Absolutely. Um, again, I think overall this will probably be a good decision for them, and I think they'll probably make more money out of this than they have been with their simultaneous releases through twenty twenty one. Again, like that, like the simultaneous release thing was done as a way to like keep their movies in people's minds um, during the pandemic and make it so that people could see them. But now that uh, more and more people are going to the theater, when I saw the Suicide Squad last week, the theater was packed. Um, so I know that there's more and more people that are willing to go to the cinema than they were back in May. Because compared to May when I saw Mugen Train in theaters, the theater for Suicide Squad was packed. While when I saw Mugen Train, there were only like seven or eight people in the theater. There's definitely a stark difference between where we were in May compared to now, but we still have a lot of room to grow, as evidenced by the fact that Suicide Squad isn't doing as well in theaters as um, people would like. This is true. But 
moving into our show discussion, um, last week we had the second to last episode of Bad Batch, the first half of the finale of the first season. And we did get confirmation of the second season coming. So we won't have a whole, we won't have as much finality as we might have initially thought with this season, but this was a really, really good episode. Yes, it was. Um, the, the episode was all about uh, the Bad Batch trying to, trying to track down a hunter who was, who was with Crosshair. And we see, we see them eventually tracking down them. And the confrontation between the Bad Batch and Crosshair was absolutely fantastic. Bringing it full circle back to the first episode in the training room. Yeah. Um, I, I love the development that we got in these interactions. Yeah, in this episode, Hunter is taken back to Camino by Crosshair, likely to be observed by the Empire because they have a specific interest in the Bad Batch because of their unique skills and abilities. But when we get to Camino, there isn't a single clone trooper to be seen. And like in episode 14, all we see are the TK troopers, the, the troopers that will inevitably become Imperial Stormtroopers. And there aren't any Kaminoans there at all either. It feels desolate and barren and full of empty rooms with no equipment to be seen. Which is kind of shocking considering, you know, this is where all, this is, we saw the, you know, this, this is where the, uh, all, all the clone troopers came from. And we saw a lot of Kamino during the Clone Wars and to see a desolate, especially after the first episode as well was, it was kind of sad, to be honest. And it just shows it, it just shows how ruthless the Empire has been and how far we are removed away from the Clone Wars. And it was just it was just incredibly sad. Yeah, this is kind of the culmination of what vampires went slowly doing with Camino over the course of the show. They're very xenophobic and they've been actively trying to phase out the the Kaminoans work within um, the show. And it's heavily implied that they killed the Prime Minister. Um, in the previous episode. So, and with the cloning science now fully being under the jurisdiction of the Empire instead of the Kaminoans themselves, it'll be interesting to see what they do with this going into the second season. This is true. Um, so, we meet our good friend AZ, uh, the, the medical droid, and he helps us get to helps us get to where, where Crosshair and everyone is, and 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 to see and to see that battle in the training room once again was awesome. Every time we've had a sequence in the Camino and training room, it has been quite awesome. Yeah. Um, going back to what you were talking with AZ, I really liked Omega's dynamic with AZ in this episode. And again, we're further seeing how much she's kind of come into her own as her own character. What did you think of their dynamic? I thought that. It was a good way to show how much she had grown since she was first introduced in the Bad Batch like in episode one. And so now that we're in the same location, we can kind of see that growth. Yeah, I liked it as well. Uh, she did, she has grown a lot uh, since the start of the season, which is great. And I loved I, I love I love seeing the emotion versus logic just kind of collide with each other. Mm -hmm. And I I like seeing AZ eventually kind of warm up in some ways, even though he is only a droid. Right. And before we get into the action sequence with Crosshair, um, before we got the sequence in the training room, we had a lot of really good dialogue with Crosshair, including the reveal that he didn't have his chip anymore. 
and it's presumed that it was probably taken out after um, the scar, the burn scars that he got back in episode eight. It's kind of similar to what I initially thought is that he stayed aligned with the Empire, despite him no longer having his chip. And we learn in this episode that that is due to him feeling betrayed by the other members of the Bad Batch for them not actively trying to save him. I mean, it's not like, I mean, it's not like the Bad Batch. I mean, yeah, you can kind of see Crosshair's perspective but at the same time. You know, Crosshair did try to kill them, and they and they he didn't exactly align with their own interests, so it makes sense. But but seeing the but but seeing that reveal was great because it gave a lot more character to Crosshair, and it showed that he that he had that free will instead of just oh he was forced to. But the fact that he did this of his own accord made his character so that much more interesting in a split second, and I loved that. Yeah, because he feels like he has a vendetta. At this point, because again, they left, they left him there. They didn't actively try to help him. They didn't try to get his chip removed like they did with Wrecker and the rest of them. Um, they just left him stranded in the Empire to his own devices. So it makes perfect sense for Crosshair. It also makes sense as to why he had so much more agency in the second half of the season to go after the Bad Batch compared to the first half. Yes, you, you definitely notice a turn halfway through the season. So, um, and then immediately following that, when um, the Empire decides to just leave the Bad Batch there for dead, Crosshair has to work with them to stay alive. And we get a very similar parallel to the training sequence, as you mentioned, from the first episode. Yeah, which, which I really enjoyed. And it was good seeing Crosshair work with the Bad Batch again. And I really... I really enjoyed just the whole dynamic and you can see how much, how similar it is to the first one, but at the same time, like there's more emotional stakes in it, which made it work really well. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're kind of seeing them try to through their action, but like building their, their camaraderie only for it to then dissipate once again, once it's all over with Crosshair, once again, trying to um, being an antagonist for the bad back. And with them all trying to escape from Camino, it'll be, it, it, I'm curious how their dynamic is going to be going into the next episode, especially if we're going to see any characters die. Yeah, I got to say the ending scene where you see the Empire just bomb Camino and you see like the, the, the very operatic music in the background was a bone chilling scene. It was very Last Jedi-esque. Mm-hmm. I, thought, I, I thought I thought it was the best like single scene of the whole season, in my opinion. That was just fantastic, and it gave me chills. Yeah, it, visually, it reminded me a lot of the finale of Star Wars The Clone Wars with the Star Destroyer crashing through the sky and how you could see, how visceral you could see all of the destruction on the Venator in that scene. It felt very similar to what we're seeing here with Camino because we're seeing all the destruction on the inside and the outside as the Empire is raining fire. Yeah. And you you just see Rampart just covered in darkness and I love that visual aspect of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I thought this whole episode was fantastic and I'm I'm really excited to check out um, the finale which of course aired the day that we're recording this. I didn't watch it because I didn't want to 
um, we did the discussion in a different way. Sean has already seen it, though. So, but I'm excited to check out what the finale will do, and we'll, of course, talk about it um, either next week or the week after. Yeah, probably the week after, because I'm pretty sure next episode is going to be almost nothing but talking about the Suicide Squad. Probably. So, that'll be fun. But, yeah, no, I... I'll say nothing about the finale. I actually wasn't planning on watching it before recording today, but it just happened because uh, because my roommate really wanted to. I'm like, okay, why not? <laughs> but yeah, that that's all I'll say. Try to talk about it when we get to it, and I will review and I will review uh, the whole first season soon. Awesome. Any final thoughts before we move on to our anime discussion, Sean? I do not. All right, we, of course, had another new episode of My Hero Academia's fifth season last week, and we returned to focusing once again on Endeavor, Deku, Bakugo, and Todoroki, and we saw them once again actively trying to meet with Endeavor and learning from him working in the field, and they still can't quite catch up to him. Yeah, no, he, Endeavor is very fast. He's very relentless. They can catch up to him even if they think they come close. Endeavor just swoops in, and it just shows that, like, yeah, this is the number one hero. He is no joke, and this episode did a great job establishing that even though he's not quite all might, he's still a um, force of nature in his own right. Yeah, um, and as great as it was seeing all the character dynamics um, between them in action on the field, I think that the what was more, probably the more interesting or more impactful part of this episode was Endeavor contemplating whether or not he wanted to have dinner with his family because whenever he sees his family eating together, they're always happy because he's not there. They're always able to feel, to be joyful and be together and enjoy that feeling of togetherness without him there because he's caused he knows that he's caused all of them so much pain. So you can see the conflict in him when he's actively, when he's trying to um, reform his family dynamic that he had broken before. Yeah. He really did a number on his family and we, we kind of got, kind of got some of that dynamic like a few episodes ago. Uh, and it was just kind of continued here this time. Deku uh, and Bakugo got to see it. Uh, Bakugo of course was like, was not enjoying it at all while Deku actually gave some really good advice that really left an impact, which was awesome to see. Yeah. Yeah. Bakugo, I think Bakugo suspected um, what Todoroki's family life was like with, due to his knowledge of who, who Endeavor is as a hero and um, all of Todoroki's issues. It's not like he's, he's been blind to any of this. And he also overheard Deku's conversation with him back in season two. But Deku has, like Midoriya has actively talked with Todoroki about all of this stuff. He knows what his dynamic is like with Endeavor because of all of their conversations. Um, so because of this, Midoriya is actually able to give Endeavor advice on trying to at least not just heal with Natsu, who very obviously, unlike Todoroki, is vehemently against any interaction with his father. but to help Endeavor at least interact with his with Todor, with uh with Shodo. Yes, uh, you know Deku is a very is very personal. He's very analytical, and because Deku does care, he's able to ba basically give 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 that perspective, and it really goes to show. It, it was a reminder, like yeah, Deku actually is a great character because 
because there are times where I'm just like, okay, he's starting to become a typical shonen protagonist. But this is I'm like, okay, yeah, Deku is different than a typical shonen protagonist. He does he does have a good heart. He does care now, and it was a nice reminder in this episode. It's not really that Deku is different than your typical shonen protagonist. I think that he's part of the new wave of shonen protagonists that we've seen recently. Um, characters like Tanjiro and Demon Slayer or Yuji Itadori and Jutsu Kaisen, we have characters that are a lot more sympathetic and go out of their way to try to connect with the people around them and understand their issues and where they're coming from and sympathize with them and just want to be their friend as much as they can and help as much as they can. Um, it's different than shonen protagonists that we've seen in like the 90s or the early 2000s where a lot of them were either distant or were really cared about their own growth and maybe not enough about the people around them. That makes sense. But, but no, I really liked um, everything that we got with the friendly dynamic. I liked seeing how Bakugo and Midoriya both reacted differently to, um, to the Todoroki family. And I especially, once again, like seeing the difference in all the kids' approaches to trying to reconnect with their father. Shoto is again kind of Waiting, he wants to see what Endeavor is actively trying to do to fix their relationship. Um, the daughter is actively is very optimistic and trying to give her father as much room as she can to improve, and she knows that he can get there, and just wants to. Um, and I think that deep down she wants to see her parents be happy together again, like she knew that they were at some point. While Natsu, who is the, the oldest son in the family, is vehemently against reconnecting with his father. He doesn't believe that what that Endeavor is being genuine about his feelings towards them and doesn't believe that he'd ever be able to change. Which you can't blame him for. Uh, especially, especially in the, the big reveal that we got in this episode. I know that earlier this season... We had another brother be mentioned, and we do see a red-haired brother to um, Shoto and Natsu appear in the flashback in this episode um, that had appeared in the flashback of season two as well, but it gets a lot more focus in this episode. And then we see him at the end. Um, we have a... In Japanese households, they carry... Uh, they have a section usually in their house dedicated to family members that they lost. Um, and we see Endeavor seemingly praying to one of his son. Um, we had heard previously in episodes that something bad had happened to him, but in this episode it's confirmed that he died. And I think that it's, it can be assumed that he, that the family um, thinks that he committed suicide over the stress that Endeavor had placed on him. That is all kinds of dark right there. And yeah, we did see this in Falcon the Winter Soldier as well uh, uh, with, with Bucky and the old man he was with. Um, but I mean, yeah, I, yeah, but that's not the same. That's like, that's that's not even close to the same. That Bucky reconnecting with the old man in Winter I'm Soldier not, is trying to make up this. for actions that Bucky had done murdering someone and never didn't directly murder his son. His son committed suicide because he couldn't handle the stress that Endeavor was placing on him. I'm just talking about the shrine, not, not, not the situation. I'm just talking about the shrine. Okay. Yeah. No, I was just saying like, yeah, we saw a shrine like we didn't talk in Winter Soldier. Okay. 
Yeah, no, no, I know they're completely different. Um, but yeah, so I did, I did like seeing that, and yeah, Endeavor's trying, but when you do, when you do things so terribly, sometimes like there's just nothing you really can do, and but if there are parties that are willing to heal, then well, that that is a positive step forward as well. Yeah. And of course, I know that we mentioned it earlier this season when Dobby first appeared on screen again in his interactions with Endeavor, but I know that a lot of fans' theories are that the sun is actually alive and that it's Dobby. Yes. So, do you think that Dobby. this is the case, or do you think oh, yeah. this is all just wild speculation? Oh, no, it's definitely Dobby. It, like, you're not going to just build up, uh, like, like Endeavor's, like, lost son if, if it's not somebody. Also, why did Dobby call him, Tod- like, Todoroki specifically in the training camp are like he, he used his name so passionately. There's a very good reason he did that. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Yeah. And also well, I, powers. Yeah. Again, we'll have to wait to see if this either gets paid off later this season or next season, but it definitely seems like they're heavily hinting towards this. And this has been a fan theory since Dobby first appeared at the end of season two. Um, and especially after the events of the training arc in season three. I feel like it would be weird for them not to be connected in some way. Even if it isn't familial, it could just be that Dobby was a sidekick to Endeavor at some point. But I think it would be way more impactful if it was a, uh, the long-lost brother that we see and that we see the shrine for in this episode. Again, the family thinking that he's dead when he's actually alive. And what's even worse is he's a villain. It feels very similar to um, Red Hood in Batman. Oh, yes. Because Red Hood, the biggest reason why Jason Todd goes on his um, rampage in Red Hood is because he's mad at Bruce for not taking vengeance on the Joker for what he did to him. And while it's not an exact one-for-one, I feel like it's a very similar-ish situation to how Dobby feels about Endeavor, assuming that they have a familiar relationship like that. Yes. Check out Batman Under the Red Hood if you haven't done so. It's a great animated movie. But, but no, overall, I think this episode was good. I don't think it, I definitely wasn't, I wasn't as intrigued by this, by this episode as much as I was with episode 15, but I think that this episode did a really good job of furthering a bunch of dynamics um, and showing how much Deku has grown and showing how much um, Endeavor is attempting to grow. And again, like further showing the type of dynamic that their family has, as well as, again, hinting towards what happened, what's happened to Endeavor's other kids, because there's more kids than just the three that um, the show is focusing on. Yeah, no, it was a very good episode. I like seeing, you know, more more interactions and growth, and I'm, I'm excited to see what happens next. Yeah, and it appears that we only have one more episode with this arc dealing with Endeavor um, before, um, because this story, like, with Endeavor training them is going to be focused more on in the movie so we only really have one more episode with this before we get into the next arc. So I'm interested to see how they're going to conclude this arc because I know that the movie is likely going to take place either somewhere in the middle of the next episode or between this episode and the next one. That is true. All right. Well, we had episode 11 of Vivian. Of course, now we're dealing with the consequences of the ending of episode 10 and... It gener- and I was thought that the apocalypse happened sooner. It just happened anyways. At the exact moment. Yeah. And Matsumoto in particular 
seems to be very angry and confused about why his actions and the reason why he was sent back in the past failed in such a way, despite the fact that they actively changed so many events. Yeah, it's, it's an understandably frustrating thing when you work so hard for something and then it ultimately blows up in your face and it was all for nothing. That's like one of the worst feelings you can possibly have. Yeah. So for him to feel that way, it's completely understandable. Uh, it's like if you work for five hours on if you if you worked for like five hours to write an essay only only to get a bad grade on it, despite putting on effort into it, like you just feel defeated. Yeah. And think about how Osano feels. And we begin this episode by watching him trying to send Matsumoto, the AI, back in time to Vivi, to Diva. But in that exact moment, he sees Diva and his AI show up to save him. And just think about how he feels that he was successful in sending the AI back in time, but it still didn't change anything. It had... It didn't work. He, it might essentially, he probably in the moment thought that he failed until um, Vivi tells him that if they had, if he hadn't been able to send him back in time, he would be dead. So they are still actively changing things. It's just that now they have to deal with what the, the apocalypse on top of the fact that they failed to stop it. Yes. And they're, only allies are the same people that they've been fighting against for for the previous like nine ten episodes yeah and i like the reason why they're so comfortable working with diva and matsumoto here um because they're being led by someone that was against the seemingly war between humans and the eyes like the growing tensions there and the the dist like towards AIs that the terrorist group had, but they're being led um, by someone that has very similar ideals to um, Osano Matsumoto, who um, isn't um, against AIs. And I love her reasoning for it because she's a descendant of the, of the man that was leading the destruction against of the island and all the stuff that was going down on the the ship in episodes three and four. Um, she's a direct descendant of him. She's his granddaughter. And in the end of the last arc, we of course saw him in the body of an AI with his, all of his memories intact. And because of D, the effect that Diva um, had on him, potentially, changed his mind towards AI. So I'm wondering if this is a ripple effect type thing. If the reason why the leader of terrorist organization is now so for working with AIs is due to the effect that Diva had on her grandfather. Yeah, probably because her grandfather was obsessed with Vivi to the point where his only goal was to was to find Vivi and get ans- and get an answer you know, to, to her mission and why she did the things that she did. Like that was, that was his obsessed driving point. And the fact that Vivi had a lot of humanizing effects on him and just throughout the whole singularity project that it showed that, you know what, maybe it wasn't completely for nothing. Yes. There's still an apocalypse going on 
as we saw the end of the episode where they're just where they're gonna start dropping satellites on cities, but at least at least it allows them to have more help this time around and they don't feel and, and there's more of a fighting chance this time around. Yeah, absolutely. I liked seeing um Elizabeth again as well and seeing how different she and Vivi are, but how similar they are as well was really neat. I think that if you're going to, of the AIs that we've seen so far in the show, I think Elizabeth was the perfect one to bring back for the final arc. Yeah, I would agree with that, considering, you know, where she was when we, when we saw her previously. She, she was, not, let's just say not in the greatest of places, but to see her very confident, I have to admit that was very satisfying after what we saw her in the space arc. Yeah, you can, I can't tell if it's due to a difference in programming or just a difference in experience, but I really liked the, the sort of finality that she got with D.Va because her memories were only backed up to a certain point. She didn't remember all the stuff from the end of episode four. So D.Va had to fill in all of the gaps for her. And I really liked um, how Elizabeth dealt with that finality that she was given by Vivi. Yes, and I still love seeing Vivian Matsumoto, uh, uh, you know, Osamu Matsumoto interact, considering that they've basically have had a lifelong friendship. And seeing them now in the present, he's, you know, he's very bitter and stressed, obviously, understandably so, considering his whole life's work just complete was almost seemingly for nothing. But still seeing his warm attitude towards her was definitely gave a little bit of happiness and what is it what was a very stressful episode yeah i also i I really like their dynamic a lot and i think that in particular i i like the dynamic between um osamu osano and um and the ai that he created in this episode as well because this is the first time he's actually getting to see his work right in front of him and I thought it was hilarious that Matsumoto is ordering his master to go by a different name because he likes his given name so much. Yes, he's like, you call me Matsumoto, you call him Doctor, which, which, I, which I did like that a lot. And yeah, I'm quite terrified for the next episode because we, we find out that, that basically it is, it is the archive uh, that is that is affecting all these AR that are basically going kamikaze on everyone, but the older AIs that don't have the archive are unaffected. And I and I like how that just clicked with everyone. And now we have we now have a direct issue to figure out. All right, wh- what now? Basically, but it was it was kind of a shocking reveal of sorts because I I thought it was some. Um, I just I just thought it was some like faulty programming or someone controlling it. It's so well, technically it is faulty programming. Because it's not like they didn't program the AIs not to attack humanity. True. Well, I thought it you know, it still could be more human based, but like it's but like since it's so I, it's, I don't think it ambiguous, is it's um, very ambiguous. Based off of the reveal at the end, it seems like the AIs determined this action this caught co- this course of action wanting to eliminate all of humanity on their own 
It seems like the archive over a hundred years of its existence saw the flaws in humanity and realized, like in so many other dystopian fiction with AIs, I that humanity on. wasn't worth saving because they weren't doing anything to try to fix their situation. They would inevitably cause their own extinction. So they decide to speed it up. We see this in things like Avengers Age of Ultron. And of course, my favorite example of this is probably in, um, in Near Automata or in, and in Near Replicant as well. This is a very common theme in sci-fi storytelling that humanity is doomed to eventually wipe itself out due to their own greed. Yeah, iRobot as well, which is which is a movie I highly recommend checking out. Stars Will Smith and Bridget Moynihan, um, where 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 you have a a robot, where you have, where you have a robot consciousness basically wanting to have the robots take over, mm-hmm. and it's because of the same reason because humans are dumb, they are flawed. I mean, they're not wrong, but at the same time. Wiping wiping humans out because that's a bit extreme, but that, that that's the way it is. And now in episode now in episode twelve we gotta fix this somehow because mm-hmm. this is kind of the problem of all problems. Yeah, and I really liked Vivi's reaction to learning that the the archive and the AIs themselves had decided to wipe humanity out because Vivi whose mission has always been to make people happy with her singing, to, keep, to save people so that they can hear her sing, um, has, it, it seems like the opposite. Uh, it, it basically is the polar opposite of what her own mission is, which is to, again, make people happy with her singing and keep them alive so that they can hear her sing. And I love her reaction to that moment in this episode. I think that Christina Valenzuela did a fantastic job throughout this episode, especially in that moment. Oh yeah, uh, the, the voice acting in this in this show has been fantastic. I really love, and you mentioned the anger in, in Matsumoto's voice that his that singular project ended in failure. I thought, I thought that the anger in that voice. I can't remember who the voice actor. It's a uh, Max Middleman that does the voice of Matsumoto. Oh yeah, duh, I should have duh, ugh. But yeah, I mean Max Middleman is a fantastic voice actor and. And hearing his anger in in that moment was fantastic. Yeah, and I don't remember who. Let me look up who the voice of the of the leader of the terrorist group is now, because she did a really good job too, and I really liked her performance as well. Ah, oh, it's not. She's not listed. Ugh, darn it. Well, whoever did the voice of Yui Kakitani in this episode was fantastic, and I hope that we get um, role confirmation soon so that I can talk about her whenever I write my review. <laughs> yeah, no, she was pretty great. I will agree with that. The voice sounded a little familiar, so I'm really curious who it was. Yeah, and of course, Allegra Clark returned as Elizabeth for this episode as well. Yeah, and she also did a great job portraying a much more confident Elizabeth. That, that definitely made it satisfying. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, again, like, I'm really interested to see where we're going next episode. I'm curious how much of it is going to take place inside of the archive and how they're going to be able to stop the apocalypse from happening. I wonder if we're going to get, if it's going to end up um, being that they send another AI back in time to further try to fix the events of the future, 
or if they're just going to have to fix it internally through like the archive or whatever. There's a lot of avenues that they could take at the show, and I really don't know which one they're going to go with. Yeah, I don't know either, uh, but I'm definitely excited to see it. I'm, I'm, I've been emotionally invested almost this whole time, and i definitely looking forward to seeing what they decide to do. Absolutely. Do you have any final thoughts on this episode before we move on to, to your turn in the Sean? Two episodes left. Looking forward to seeing how it ends. Um, just a little break from our normal arcs into your tourney. This week we watched episode six, which acted as a little bit of an intermission between our previous arc and the next one. What did you think of episode six of two year eternity, Sean? Well, uh, Fushi definitely was, I, I don't think we, I don't think any character grew as much on today's podcast as Fushi did because Fushi literally learned how to have conversations. Oh my God. Conversations. Wow, yes, Fushi learned how to have conversations, and he actually had coherent sentences and phrases. Like, I don't know. That was weird. Yes, that was the thing that Fushi said. When the only thing he really said beforehand was, thank you for the food, basically. Mm -hmm. So seeing Fushi learn how to speak was definitely great. I also really loved seeing him learning all this. You know, he Mm -hmm. had an interest in writing, just, you know, writing stuff on the ground with a stick and – and and the old woman, I, I even during the episode, I'm like, wait, how do you pronounce your name? I, yeah, um, I don't, I don't, I'm not gonna try either. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not even gonna try either. So I'm just gonna call her the old woman. Yeah, she's but, voiced by Dorothy Fawn in the dub. Yes, um, seeing seeing her teach him was great, and I, I loved how uh, how Fushi, since he you know didn't learn how to be, still hadn't learned before human, was basically just kind of ignoring her. And then she was like, I'm hungry. I haven't eaten in two days. And Fushi turns into Mars, climbs up a tree, and then Fushi gives her food by literally just chucking it at her, which was absolutely hilarious. But, I mean, she got the food that she needed. It's just that Fushi was just annoying, just threw the, threw the food at her. And I just found that so funny and oddly wholesome, even though it was – even though it was not fully intended to be as such when it comes to, you know, the situation in it, but it was very wholesome and very funny. And it was really nice, you know, considering that, you know, the previous episode, we saw a child die, which still horrible. And, but what also made it also wholesome was seeing her do it in the form of March, seeing that like she still has a presence and a role in the show, but now it's just through Fushi. Yes. Um, because again, like, as we saw with the boy and the bear and the wolf, Fushi keeps the people that he sees die inside of himself and can turn into them at will that way, keeping them alive within him. Yeah. And we see, we see him take on different forms for convenience. Uh, he doesn't turn to the boy that much because he doesn't feel like he needs to until he meets the old woman. Uh, we see, you know, we see him as the wolf most of the time because it's easier to travel and he can use the sense of smell. But we see Marshall when he climbs up a tree uh, to get fruit, and I just love that adaptability. Uh, Fushi's a very adaptable being, being in, just being an adaptable orb. But I like seeing that attention to detail. That is, to me, very good writing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is also the first time that we're introduced to what seems like um, our first real antagonistic force for Fushi to deal with. Yes, we, we see basically anti-Fushi is basically what I 
basically how I interpret anti-fushi, where basically instead of, because fushi is, is supposed to preserve life and learn knowledge, while basically anti-fushi is to impede that progress and to destroy. And I, I, I like how there is literally, like, the, the protagonist antagonist is literally polar opposites in this situation, basically as, as surface level polar opposites as you can get, but, but, but in a good way, but in a good way. And I like, I like seeing the beholder for the first time, the one who created him and seeing him in kind of a wizard outfit. Yeah. He's sort of uh, mysterious. His dark, his darker outfit kind of makes him seem like he's keeping to the shadows, uh, especially in how he's kind of, Refusing to help Fushi and letting him figure out the world on his own. Yeah, and I love how. Um, so I'm going to give you advice that's very, very simple for you to understand with your intellect. Uh, fight and win, and then he doesn't immediately. I like how he was like, "Okay, I'm going to make this very simple because I know how far you along because I've been watching you. Uh, let me let let me give you uh, this. Let me give you this very simple advice, which." Yeah, what was pretty cool, and just to see Fushi just go off on the anti-Fushi was great to see. Yeah, and then, of course, the episode ends with us kind of meeting what appears to be our main cast for the next arc. Yeah, um, what, 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 do, you, what do you think we're going to see in that? What do you think we're going to see in the next arc? Well, I've already watched it, so that would be better for me to ask you that question. Well. Basically, I feel like we're going to get kind of more of the same in from the previous arc, where we see a bunch of depressing, but uh, a bunch of depressing uh, family and cultural and uh, and cultural drama. And I, because because this show does not pull its punches at all in, in the emotional beats and. Can we please not have another child die, please, please? <laughs> like I'm, I, like I know that might be asking too much, but why do I get the feeling that we're gonna ha- have that again, and it's gonna be, and it's gonna hurt even worse? So I am. I will say nothing. Oh no. Oh no. I'll neither confirm nor deny that people may or may not die in the next arc. Oh. Oh. Okay. Okay. <sighs> but it is a safe <sighs> assumption. I don't know if I can handle this show. This is, this, yeah. Well, when they got there, I'm just like, all right, what depressing stuff are we going to get next time? Um, and I'm scared. I'm genuinely scared, man. Cause yeah, that's, I'll leave it at that. But overall, what were your thoughts on this episode, Sean? This episode is great. I'm glad we got a pure antagonistic force for Fushi that's also a bit more supernatural instead of the comp- instead of just the villages he's at. And I really like uh, seeing um, him grow into a human. Now it's easier to connect with Fushi instead of just being like, "Dude, say something. Dude, say something. Dude, say something." Like, like, learn, like, figure this out. But now that he has, like, you know, it, it's it's easier to have a connection into. Uh, you know, understand him more, and I really enjoyed that. So overall, a fantastic episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a nice, it, it's a really kind of nice intermediate episode that again establishes, like you said, an antagonistic force for Fushi that sort of acts in tandem to him, taking away 
the lives of those that he kept inside of him. And I think that it kind of poses a really nice, like, thematic meaning towards the story that Two Your Turn is giving, because it's about Fushi experiencing life around him, yet this force is attempting to take that away from him. Yeah, so, and we don't know when this thing is ever going to appear again. It just appeared randomly in a forest. We don't know when it's going to show up, and that's just going to make things even more nerve-wracking. I think it's implied that the biggest reason it showed up was because of how often Fushi was switching between his forms. That it was attracted to him changing his form so much. Okay, I did not pick up on that, but that does make sense. But we'll have to see what they do with that in, in future episodes. Assuming that it comes back, it probably will, considering how big of a threat it is and the fact that Fushi's only going... like he, As much as we don't want to say it, people are going to die more, and Fushi's inevitably going to get more forms to take. So it's very likely that we'll see the monster appear again later on in the show. No! As, a bigger, as an even bigger threat. But Yeah, that is true. But no, um, but that will do it for this week's episode of Nerds Pollution. Uh, what do you have coming up on the site, Sean? Well, I uh, started, started uh, getting back into the swing of things. Uh, you know, got a couple of soccer uh, race coverage coming up, but also I'm going to review uh, season one of the Bad Batch, hopefully within the next week. And uh I'm just about done with the with the final case of Ace Attorney, uh, Trials and Tribulations. So I'm going to have a review of that. And based on the way it's going, it's going to be a more uh, conventional review than just breaking down case by case. Because I don't really need to talk about the second and third case of that game. I, it's, it's more of an overall story. Like, I don't really need to talk about the second and third cases very much. So it'll be more of a conventional video game review. So look forward to that. Maybe work on that the next week as well. Awesome. I know that for me, I have an analysis article talking about Lore Olympus, a webtoon by Rachel Smith that, um, of course, you, I talked about it a while on the podcast last week. It's completely free to read, but I have an analysis article coming out talking about the relationship between Hades and Persephone and Lore Olympus. Um, I also will be posting reviews for the next few rounds of comic book um, that I am reading next week, including Moon Knight, Supergirl, and um, a few others, like I think I'm not, we also have another issue of Nightwing coming out next week as well. So get excited for that. Um, and I'll, of course, be doing show reviews for um, Vivi and a few other things once they finish in the next couple of weeks. So get excited for all of that. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. But yeah, that's all that we got for you guys. Thank you all for listening. Have a great rest of your day.